final at UCLA in a philosophy class and asked one question. It had you know, those blue books that they hand out. Um, you have to answer this one question, and, and you know, it's got some 20, 25 pages in it, and you get a couple of hours um, to give your answer. And you know, the, the question was, what is courage? And you know, all the, the students there have spent a, a semester learning something in philosophy. Um, they think they have to put some of that down on this paper, and so they spend uh, the full two hours writing word after word and page after page describing what courage is. One student thought, I don't like writing very much. I'm just going to write two words. This is. What is courage? He received an A. This is courage. You know, this morning we saw that kindness is the natural result of our belief in Christ. We believe that Christ loves us, and so as a result of that, we want to show that love to other people. We want to emulate that kindness. And this evening, I want to look at uh, another result of our faith, and that's biblical courage, and biblical boldness. And it's a result of our belief in Christ, but it's one that we have a difficult time squaring with kindness. How can we be both bold courageous, and kind. So, what is courage? That's what the college student was asked. What do we think? This is. doesn't have the same effect in this setting. <laughs> what is courage? <laughs> okay. What a doing something that makes you uncomfortable. What else? what's right no matter the consequences. Anything else? What is courage? Okay. What the... He didn't have it. Okay. <laughs> Today we played a game. It, got to explain it a little bit. We played a game <laughs> where it was basically charades, and Chantel was asked to um, tell us where, or, you know, mime or whatever, Costa Rica, and she said, well, it, it's where the bad people are. <laughs> so uh, it, it, takes, it takes courage to go to Costa Rica, uh, even if Chantel doesn't know exactly where that might be. <laughs> Anything else we could think of that courage is? Form of strength. Form of strength. Okay. It's pretty good. So, with all due respect to that student from UCLA, courage is far more than a clever response on a college exam. It's more than um, just taking a, a gamble 
and getting your way. That student, he took a chance, he took a risk, he gambled that his cute answer would get him the teacher's approval, and he turned out right, but true courage goes far deeper than that, and then just taking a chance um, that we can get by on our risk. Plutarch said, courage consists not in hazarding without fear, but being resolutely minded in a just cause. In other words, in a lot of the answers we gave, um, you know, I was thinking when I put this question up there, this one isn't as easy as what is faith, because we put that up on the screen sometimes. We have a, a biblical answer for that, right? We have a biblical definition. We put this one up, and we still saw a lot of those answers sounded a lot like Hebrews 11, right? Faith is when we do something, when we go out on a limb because we trust God. It's faith in a just cause or an ideal or for us in the will of God. But this kind of faith, you know, faith that's the basis of true courage, is often the type of faith that requires us to be all alone. It requires us to do something that isolates us from other people. You know, throughout the Bible, we're told of stories uh, of people doing just that. Found this poem, Noah built the ark and voyaged alone. His neighbors laughed at his strangeness and perished in style. Abraham wandered and worshipped alone. Sodomites smiled at the simple shepherd, followed the fashion and fed the flames. Daniel dined, prayed alone. Elijah sacrificed and witnessed alone. Jeremiah prophesied and wept alone. Jesus loved and died alone. So over and over again, we see this. God's people are isolated because of courage. So why do you think that the faith of all these people required them to stand alone? Why did Jesus have to die alone? Why did Noah have to be on an ark alone with only a few members of his family and some animals? Why does faith isolate us? Strange. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Peculiar. Did I hear something else? Mm-hmm. What else? Why does our faith isolate us? is changing. Jack brought up a great point. You know, courage, we didn't put it in the definition, but courage is scary. It's doing things that we are uncomfortable with by definition. You know, the general rule for most people in the world is they would rather not. Most people would rather not stand alone. In fact, they just leave well enough alone, right? That's how they want to get by. They'd rather not rock the boat. They'd rather not be seen as judgmental. They say, you know, we'll let people believe whatever they want because that's easier to do. They'd rather just live and let live. And they'll even tell you that's the kind thing 
to do. That's the nice thing to do is just play along with whatever is happening around us. So how do we merge biblical kindness with courage? Kindness has to go against the grain sometimes. It's not just playing nice every chance we get. It sometimes requires us to call sin, sin. It sometimes requires us to stand up for God's truth, even while everyone around us would rather us sit down and be quiet. You know, on the Rooted Daily podcast last week, we talked about um, when we were kids, we were told if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all, right? And and Paul wrote um, to the Ephesians, This is a biblical concept. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. Um, I think I have. There it is. No? Maybe I don't have it. That's okay. Paul said to the Ephesians, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, or building up in the NIV, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away with you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God and Christ forgave you. So for Christians, if our words aren't coming out of a place of love, they aren't coming out of a place of God. God is love, and if we are in him, then we only say things that are kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving. But we shouldn't confuse that kindness with being unchallenging. Our words, they should challenge people. That's why I'm here. I'm not saying things just to be nice. Words, they should be challenging. In Colossians 2, Paul writes, For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea. For as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. The NIV translates that fine-sounding words. Anyone can make their words sound fine. Anyone can make their words persuasive. We must speak the, the truth in love, but if we leave either side of that equation out, if our words are, are just fine-sounding, just persuasive, then we failed. If we abandon Christ to try to make people comfortable, that's not kindness. That's a failure. Uh, years ago, um, they probably seen this before, where the valedictorian gets to give a speech, right, at the beginning or at the end of um, the year when they graduate, and and she'd gotten the highest GPA, so she had earned this right, a girl named Brittany McComb in Nevada, and she had given a copy of her speech to the school administrators uh, and and asked them to look it over, and she had included some biblical references in this, even mentioned uh, the name Christ a few times in it. And of course, you know, the school administrators looked it over and censored those references, and they warned her um, if she used those, that her mic would be cut off. And so the day came, and she um, had to decide whether she was going to stand up for Christ or bow down to the school, and she decided that she wouldn't bow down. So she went with her speech as she originally wrote it, followed through on its threat to, to drop the mic as soon as she did. Uh, crowd of 400 jeered for a while knowing what had happened. Something similar uh, a year later in Lewis Palmer High School in Denver. There's a, a valedictorian there who also talked about her, their faith and they lost their diploma because of it. They said, 
we're not going to let you graduate because you didn't follow the rules um, that guided your speech. And we might say, well, that's not right. And it's not right. But one man said, if you want to follow Jesus, you would better look good on wood. Or as John more eloquently put it, by this we know love because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to, what? First John 3.16? Did I hear it? Lay down our lives for the brethren, right? Christ died for us, and so, again, just as God showed mercy to us, we have to show mercy to others, and the fullest extent of that is sacrificing even our lives. If we take a stand for Jesus Christ, we've got to realize there are going to be times when that is going to be challenged, when that's going to be rebuked, when that's going to be punished, because even Jesus was rebuked and punished and challenged. There will be times we have to stand alone, just like Jesus did. But that's the, the nature of our faith that underlies godly courage. And so this evening I want to look at the story of John the Baptist, because you know what happened to John, just like those stories uh, we read, it wasn't right. It isn't what should have happened to a good godly man like John. John stood up for God's righteousness. He stood up against hypocrisy and sinfulness. He called people to repentance, baptized them, and he pushed one couple, though, too far, and they pushed back. So let's read it here in Matthew 14. It says, At that time Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had said to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod, and therefore he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. And so she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. And so he sent and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to the mother. And then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went away and told Jesus. And when Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. That's not right. That's not how things should have happened for John, right? We're told that Herod, the ruler of Palestine at the time, he married Herodias, his brother's wife. What was wrong with that? What did Herod do that was so wrong? Why can't you marry your brother's wife? It's fine. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Why shouldn't have Herod done it? Was it just because it wasn't culturally appropriate? Was it because the people it might undermine his power, right? People would, you know, sometimes we look at, at politicians and we say, oh man, they really shouldn't have had that affair because now they're losing their credibility. They can't, that wasn't why, you know, John was so insistent that, that Herod not do this. Why did Herod want to warn, or excuse me, why did John want to warn Herod so fervently not to do this, not to be with his brother's wife? It was sin. Leviticus 20.21, 20, if a man marries his brother's wife, it is an act of impurity. He has dishonored his brother, and they will be childless. Now, 
There's an exception to that law. If a man died childless, his brother was required to marry his dead brother's wife and take care of her. But in this case, Herod's brother was still alive. There's something that was wrong here with Herod. And it wasn't just a matter of perception, and it wasn't just a matter uh, of whether it was culturally appropriate. This was a matter of right and wrong with God. He was disobeying a direct command of God. His marriage to Herodias was an abomination. It was sin. It would condemn them to childlessness and eventually to hell. And so John the Baptist, being a good prophet, he confronts Herod. He confronts Herodias. And as you might expect, they weren't too happy about this. We're told in Matthew that Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying, it is not lawful for you to have her in verses 3 and 4. In fact, Matthew tells us that Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people, so he backed off for a while. They considered him a prophet. The Gospel of Mark tells us Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man in Mark 6, 19 through 20. So obviously, you know, we've got a couple of pretty angry people here. Both of them wanted to kill him, they were afraid because the crowds were behind him, but they wanted him dead. They wanted him out of the picture. And eventually, all that anger and all that hatred builds up to a point where John dies at their command. John's death was a shock to everyone who heard it. The crowds were upset about this. Jesus was so shaken that we see that he withdrew to a, a solitary place by boat. You know, this was a deep loss because it shouldn't have happened. John wasn't doing anything he wasn't supposed to do. He had godly courage. He was willing to go to Herod and say, Herod, what you are doing is wrong, and you must stop doing it. Over and over again, we see Herod doing this. He kept on saying, that's what the text says, he kept on going to Herod. He didn't just go to Herod once and say, this is wrong, and then back away. He kept going to him, said, you cannot do this. And this is difficult to wrap my mind around because John could have backed off. He could have gone to Herod once, warned him, and said, my duty's done. I, I can leave now. He knew what this was eventually going to result in. He knew how angry it was making Herodias that he was saying this. He should have stopped. He should have said no more and backed off. But he didn't. He kept pushing, and he kept pushing, and he kept pushing, and it killed him. So why did John push Herod so hard? Why not just leave well enough alone? Why rock the boat? Why did he have to be so judgmental? Why not just live and let live? Okay. He was standing up for what God said. What? He had concern for Herod. Anything else? Absolutely. What else? You know, John, he could have played nice. And he would have lived if he would have done that. But he didn't. You know, the Greek in Matthew and Mark, he repeatedly did it. Matthew 14, 4, John kept on saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And it kind of 
reminds me of the, those people who go on Animal Planet, right? And they, they pick up the big snakes and they, they look them dead in the eye and they say, don't do this at home. And then, you know, some of them get hurt after the fact. They keep looking the snakes in the eye and they eventually, just matter of chance, at some point they are going to get bit. But John always seems to be, and he uses that word snake-like people, over and over again, he goes, he stares them in the eye and says, what you are doing is wrong, and I have to tell you. In the Gospel of Luke, we're told, uh, the crowds came to him to be baptized, and he tells them, in verse 7 of Luke 3, then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Luke 3, 7 through 9. And that was John's message to everyone. Repent, change, flee from the wrath of God. Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And it's the repeated message in Scripture. Now, it wasn't just for John in his day. It was for the church in our day as well. Paul said they preached to the Jews and the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds in Acts 26.20. In the first gospel sermon, of course, on Pentecost, Peter declared, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, men may seek to change that message. They may be offended because that doesn't seem kind, that doesn't seem nice to them, but John didn't care. John knew what kindness was. He preached the same message to prostitutes and tax collectors that he preached to religious leaders like the Pharisees and to the kings and queens and, and political leaders like Herod and Herodias, and he did so fully aware that it would upset people but I think John the Baptist also did it fully aware that eventually, if you look snakes in the eye enough, they are going to bite. John knew that eventually he would upset someone, especially if he kept going to these high-powered people who could order, bring me that man's head on a platter, that eventually it would happen. So he did it fully aware that he was going to upset people. But why? Why would John do this? Why is he deliberately confronting people with their sin? Well, first, we said it. This is what God said. And who was John? What was he doing for God? He was a prophet, right? The prophet's job is to say what God has told the people. And this was what God had sent him to do. This was what he was born to do. John the Baptist's responsibility was to prepare the way for the Lord, for Jesus. How do you prepare the way for the Lord? Well, tell people how they can belong to him. They have called uh, all people to repentance. As Casey said, he's talking to Gentiles here, paving the way for what would be the church, where all people could come and have a relationship with God, um, no matter if they were in that uh, original chosen people. But the only way they can repent, the only way they can change their lifestyle is if someone or somehow they realize that what they're doing now is wrong. Somebody has to tell them if they are going to turn away that there is something to turn away from. And as Christians, we don't do God any favors by backing off for what God calls sin. And there are preachers, there are uh, Sunday school teachers, regular Christians who try to backpedal when someone calls sin, sin. When push comes to shove, they'd rather leave those things in 
the background, but if the Bible calls something sin, so should we. The story goes about a preacher got a complaint one day because he was, um, got fired up one Sunday, and he uh, did a sermon that probably the local paper would have been pretty upset about if they had heard it. Uh, some member pulled him aside and said, you should back off. You're going to get us in trouble. Someone's going to come in here. Um, they're going to they're gonna record what you said. The whole world's going to be upset with us. And he took him back into the kitchen, um, and he pulled out what was under the sink, all the different uh, poisons and, and cleaners, and said, okay, as soon as you take the label off of all of these and say this is just wintergreen flavor, like the Tide Pods, right, that all the kids were eating, then I'll stop calling sin sin. We have a responsibility when we see poison, when we see sin, when we see uh, something that's depraved and uh, unapproved by God, to call it by what it is. And that's the first reason that John never gave up confronting the sin of Herod and others. It was his job. It was his job to put the label on the bottle and warn people what they were doing. But the second reason, and we said it, I think gets even deeper to the heart of what John was doing. And John, I think he liked Herod. I think he loved Herod. I think he was concerned for, as Mike said, his soul. You know, think about it. And there in Luke 3, we saw it too. Everybody else that we read about recorded um, coming to, to meet John the Baptist came to him. They came and were baptized. They went to him. They sought him out. He was meeting somewhere. For Herod and Herodias, though, John went to them. Repeatedly, he went to them. John didn't wait for Herod to come and find him. John went to Herod. And when he rebuked Herod, I don't think John did it because he was in a bad mood. I don't believe he confronted Herod because he wanted to be unkind or, or that he, he wanted to upset him. John was looking for what he kept claiming, repentance, uh, for a change of his life. He was looking for this leader to actually become a godly man. You know, John had faith in the power of God to change people's lives. And because he believed in God's power, he had the courage, the boldness, to do what was necessary, to confront a wicked king in the hopes of God reaching down into his heart and turning him around. And because of that, he died. Because of his courage, because of his boldness, his head ended up on a plate, served for dinner. He lived his life for Christ to the very end, and it ended. You know, Paul tells us that no matter what happens around us, we should stand up for God. We should live lives worthy of the gospel. He writes to the Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. No matter what happens, live your lives in a way worthy of the gospel of Christ. You know, others should look at us and they should realize how much we value the gospel. They, I think they could do that for John. I think they could look to John the Baptist and recognize how important God was to him. John knew we aren't saved by works, but faith without them is dead. We aren't saved by our courage. We aren't saved by our kindness, but faith without courage and kindness is dead. The gospel should make us kind and bold. And John understood that those can go hand in glove. Paul continues writing to the Philippians, writing, Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. 
You know, part of us living our lives worthy of our calling requires courage, and others are going to see that courage and know that it is a sign from God that we are saved. Not because our circumstances are any easier to be courageous. It's not because you know, we somehow don't have the same fears as everyone else, but because our trust is now in a faithful God that even though we still have those circumstances around us, perfect love drives out fear. That is real courage. Real courage makes us show kindness when it doesn't make sense, makes us confront sin when it would be easier to let it slide, and it empowers us to be humble enough to recognize sometimes we are in the seat where we need to repent, that we need to tackle the sin that's still nagging at our flesh. Peter wrote that the Lord is patient. King James Version says long-suffering with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance in 2 Peter 3, nine, You know, we show kindness because God showed it to us. We show courage because God showed it to us. But his kindness and his courage is challenging. His kindness calls us to repent because that's the only thing love can do. The only thing that love can do is tell us what God has already said so that we can have hope. So if you're ready to repent this evening, or you realize you've been struggling to, to grow in your courage and your kindness that comes with faith. You need the prayers and the encouragement and the strength of this body, this family, and the forgiveness of Jesus to get back on the right track. Now's the time to come to the front of the room as we stand and as we sing.